Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Welcome to a brand new week of bringing clarity to the chaos. Today, our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino and Avi Lipkin will present a world prophetic update. But first, James Collins and author Charles Martin investigates why the story of the deluge or the global flood of Noah permeates nearly every culture in the world. Did you know the story of the global flood of Noah is found in almost every culture in the world? More than 300 stories of great floods are found around the world from South America to India to Australia. And despite the similarities that all these accounts have, some scholars look at the minor differences in the stories and say, it never happened. But could there be another explanation? Could the flood stories have their origins in the truth of Noah's flood as detailed in Genesis? Joining me today to talk about Noah's flood is Charles Martin. Charles is an author, editor, and public speaker. He has written a wonderful book that I have here in my hands right now called Flood Legends, Global Clues of a Common Event, and he's here to talk with me about the book today. Charles, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, James. I appreciate it. Charles, let me get started by getting to know you a little bit. Well, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Let's go there. That's a fun story because I was raised in a Christian home. I had two very solid believers for parents, and there was never a point in time where I didn't believe Jesus was Lord. There was Mm. never a point in time where I doubted that he was raised from the dead. But my walk was horrible. Mm -hmm. And there were times where you could even say I really didn't have much of a walk at all. And I think there came a point in my time where I kind of looked at my faith, and I said, man, if I don't do something about this, I'm not going to have a faith. Through lots lots of different circumstances, lots of people, God's Word, and just God speaking to me, I really, really hit a point where I had to fall on my face and go, okay, I know you're Lord, but now I want to act like you're Lord. Mm. And that was actually a little later in life. I was in my mid-twenties when that happened, and at that point, he really changed my life. Um, And that is no exaggeration. I have a similar testimony. I had a head-on collision with the Lord Jesus Christ a little later in life after I'd been in the military for several years, and I never got over that. So praise God, brother. I'm excited, Charles, to talk to you today about this book, Flood Legends. Tell me, how did you come to write this book? I went to a liberal college, a secular school, and this was 20 years ago. And even back then, on college campus, it was pretty much, you know, be open-minded, accept everybody. Everybody's religion is fine. Everybody's faith is great. Don't hate on people unless they're Christian. And then they're morons. If you believe Christianity, then you can't be intellectual. I remember kind of looking around thinking, man, that's stupid. (laughs) I mean, let's not pull punches. It's kind of a dumb philosophy that everything is great and accept everything. Oh, except for that. Don't accept that. And what was interesting was that in college, just kind of on a whim, I decided to take Sanskrit as a language. It's an ancient East Indian language. The Hindu language comes from that, or the Hindi language, excuse me. And I decided to take it for fun. It looked fun. It was weird, and I was into weird stuff. And so I thought, well, let me try this language out. And I found out that their mythology had a flood legend. Mm. And it was a global flood. It was vastly different from Genesis, but it had some parallels to it. And I thought, what are the odds of that? Because I'd heard of older flood legends around the Middle East, and the idea was they just borrowed them or stole them or whatever. But I thought, that's really unlikely to have one in India. At the same time, you've got one developing in the Middle East. 
if they're both made up or if they were borrowing from each other. That didn't make any sense to me at all. And I began researching flood legends in general, and I had to write a thesis for my undergraduate. And I made my thesis about the Genesis flood and how world mythology kind of pointed back to the Genesis flood. It wasn't well received, but my advisor, to her great credit, now this was the woman who was fully LGBTQ, atheist, Mm -hmm. anti-Christian, everything, After she had read it, she sat me down in her office. She said, you know, I can't really be happy about this because of what you said. She said, but I don't have an argument for you. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? Praise God. I think that's about the best I'm going to get from you at the moment. So I hope I don't, I haven't kept in touch with her. I hope she's, I hope she's a Christian now. When you have an atheist tell you that she was having a hard time disbelieving in the Bible at that point, you know, you hit something, you got something there. It's a great apologetic. You write in the first chapter of Flood Legends that the story of the flood permeates nearly every culture of the world in some way, shape, or form. Would you elaborate on that statement? The Flood Legend, it's found in every major people group. It's found in even many, many, many of the smaller people groups, people groups that you've never heard of, that I've never heard of until I started researching. And the time frames stretch back. You've got stories that are thousands of years old, and you have stories that stretch back just a few hundred years, but it is absolutely everywhere. Just to put it in perspective, I don't think anybody knows how many stories there are. But a friend of mine, his name is Nick, who wrote a book called Echoes of Ararat. Mm -hmm. And he chronicles 300 distinct legends just from North and South America alone. Wow. And those were the ones he wrote. He discarded several hundred during his research and writing. Yeah. And he just tried to pick. My research says that there are more than 300 around the world, is what I read. So, Charles, every culture has a flood myth. However, isn't it true that since the late 1800s, scholars have come to see myth not as wholly fictional, but instead embellishments of the truth? There was a huge push, yeah, in the late 18 and early 1900s with men like Fraser and Joseph, I want to say Conrad, no, uh, Campbell, there he is. You start seeing a push for, well, maybe, maybe mythology isn't fake so much as it is misunderstood, or maybe it was an animal ran in front of somebody and they had a thought and they decided to say the animal talked to me, that sort of thing. Prior to that, you had a lot of thought that mythology was just all fake. There was nothing to it at all. I kind of look at that and I go, I don't think either of these views are necessarily correct because people tell stories. That's what we do. And we don't always tell only fictional stories or only factual stories. You know, we tell a mixture of things. Sometimes we misunderstand stuff and we do embellish truth. I think that's really one of the driving forces behind that book was trying to fight the idea that world mythology has to be real or can't possibly be real. Because once we start pigeonholing really anything, we can do this with people too, I think, and once we start pigeonholing into one small little box, we lose our humanity. We lose our grasp on people as people. I think about how it could quite possibly be that the myths about gods fathering a child with a human woman and that child being a titan like Hercules actually find their origins in the truth of Genesis 6. So you think the same is true of the story of Noah's flood, is that right? Absolutely. I believe that the flood was a global flood, that it was a real event, and I believe that what we see in the mythology, even in all the differences, is that it points back to that. 
and it points back to the very real moment where the earth was destroyed and then people survived and started over. Well, if you're just joining us today on the program, my guest is Charles Martin, the author of the book Flood Legends. It's a great book about global clues to a common event that go back to Noah's flood. You can get your own copy of this great book right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Charles, in Flood Legends, you use the term telephone mythology. Now, I love that terminology. I love how you use that throughout the book. What did you mean by telephone mythology? You know, I coined that term, and I was so hoping it would catch on, but unfortunately it hasn't, and that's, <laughs> that's okay. So telephone mythology, I kind of got that notion because of the game of telephone. Pretty sure just about everybody's played it, but just in case you haven't, if you're you know, a big group of people, you get a dozen people sitting in a circle, and one person whispers something to the next person. Mm-hmm just a sentence, maybe two, and then that person turns to the person next to them and whispers what they heard, and then that person whispers to the next person, and so on, and so on, and so on, and almost always, by the time you get all the way around the circle to the last person, whatever was whispered has completely changed. You might find echoes of the original statement, but it's usually pretty wild. I remember sitting in Sunday school playing that game. One of our Sunday school teachers, he was researching something, and he was riding around in the police cruiser. And so his wife was teaching the class, too, and she whispered that her husband was in a police cruiser researching. And by the end of the circle, our teacher had been arrested. Right. (laughs) Now that story changed. So what I began thinking about when I began looking at this idea of mythology was if there was a flood and if it really happened and the survivors stepped out in the Middle East, you know, and they had kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had kids. That story is going to be retold. That was a huge major event for them, right? And as stories get retold, we know from the game that things change. And if the Tower of Babel happened, which it does in Genesis, if the Tower of Babel happened and people are scattered even further and they're cut off from each other from language barrier, you're going to have even more changes happen. And as civilization and culture spread out, you're just going to have this gigantic global game of telephone where you're going to see a story that changes from the truth but still exists. Well, Noah's Flood, the account that we have in Genesis, would be the truth, the story, and then over time after Babel, your telephone mythology would say that that story came to evolve into the flood legends that you talk about in the book. Absolutely. Well, one of the most well-known flood legends, flood stories, comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. For those who are not familiar, what is the Epic of Gilgamesh? The Epic of Gilgamesh is a long poem. It comes out of Mesopotamia. It's a very, very old poem, very long poem. It's about a hero named Gilgamesh who, after a series of adventures, decides to find a mortal wife, and he talks to an old man who has been alive for hundreds, thousands of years even, and he finds out that that man was still alive because he had survived a global flood. He was the sole survivor with his wife and his kids, and he survived the global flood, and as a result, the Assyrian gods gave him immortality. And so the Epic of Gilgamesh is often compared to Genesis because, you know, they're in the same region of the world. The similarities are very striking. Even back then, even that early, we already see some of that telephone mythology kick in, which is what makes it so interesting to me, is that it's not that far removed from Genesis, but it's still changed just a little bit. 
Well, you talk a lot about myth in the book. So for those of us who are just kind of lay people, what do you define as a myth? What is a myth? Well, you know, the popular definition is myth means fiction, it means fairy tale. But in the Greek thinking, myth just meant speech, Mm -hmm. story, discourse. You could tell a fictional myth about learning how to fly on a broomstick, or you could tell a completely factual myth about going to the grocery store. Myth just meant a story, is really all it meant. So you say in the book also, when studying myths, that it's very important to understand the way culture influences those myths. Why is that important? That's extremely important because, you know, if we think about this, the problem with the problem, quotation marks there, the problem with all of these flood legends is that they're different. And this is what a lot of scholars look at and go, no, we can't believe these because they're so different. And I'm arguing, well, those differences are coming from telephone mythology, and a lot of them are arising because of the cultures that are retelling the myth, right? If the boat landed on the mountains of Ararat in reality, but you're a kid over in India hearing the story of the global flood, your dad's not going to tell you about the mountains of Ararat. He's going to talk about the mountain outside of your window, right? And so different ideals of of what it means to be a good person, what it means to be holy and righteous, like Noah is, are going to vary from culture to culture. And so once we understand cultures, we can actually see where some of those differences came from. You devote a chapter in Flood Legends to Genesis chapter 11 and the scattering of the descendants of Noah at the Tower of Babel. Remind us what happened in Genesis 11 and tell us again how that factors into the Flood Legends. I don't know this for a fact, but to me the linchpin of all of this is the Tower of Babel. And basically the story about the Tower of Babel is men decided to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a tower to reach up to heaven. In essence, they wanted to become, in their own minds at least, God. And of course, God does not share his authority because he doesn't need to. He doesn't have to. He shouldn't. And he didn't like that. So he scattered them. He confused their languages so that they could not cooperate. And I believe that it's in that scattering and in that confusion of languages that we see the greatest amount of telephone mythology begin to arise. Because at this point, then, they're no longer borrowing stories from each other. They're no longer telling the stories and correcting any mistakes. They're now telling a story the way they hear it and changing it as they tell it because they're now isolated in separate cultures. Again, that's purely theoretical. But I believe that Tower of Babel legend is absolutely 100% important. And what makes it important, too, is that is also all over the planet. Tower of Babel stories are almost as prevalent as flood stories. In the book Flood Legends by Charles Martin, you'll discover detailed analysis of myth, legend, and historical details that are clues for a common global event. Through these legends, this epic event has remained woven into the tapestry of cultural history, sharing not just the story of survival, but the power of obedience and the fulfillment of God's enduring promise. Order your copy of Flood Legends today by calling one 800 652-1144 or order online swrc.com. Invasions, military strife, and tensions rising all over the globe. Dr. Larry Spargimino and Avi Lipkin come now to present a world prophetic update. What a great delight to be face-to-face with Avi Lipkin 
We've been working together here at Southwest Radio Church with him since 1995. That's a long time. Thank you so much for being with us. Great to be back. One of the people that I've always admired in Israel, I kind of thought he was a good guy. He spoke tough. He did tough things, was former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Tell us a little bit about what's happening to Benjamin. I have to say emphatically that Benjamin Netanyahu is the greatest Prime Minister Israel ever had. And I love Netanyahu. I think he's a great man. But there's a saying, you know, that sometimes people outstay their welcome. Netanyahu's problem was an interpersonal problem with many people in his party. The new prime minister today in Israel, Naftali Bennett, was the director of the prime minister's office under Netanyahu. Avigdor Lieberman was also very top. Gidon Sar, all these guys were ministers, cabinet portfolio ministers in Netanyahu governments. And he, for some reason, had a way of angering and offending people in a very arrogant manner. And by being that kind of a leader, he might have been a good leader internationally, but in the country, people were beginning to feel that he had a certain toxicity. We had four elections in the last three years. Netanyahu was always given the first shot to form a government. To form a government in Israel, you needed 61 members of Knesset out of 120. And Netanyahu could never get above 52 because it was the Likud and it was the ultra-Orthodox parties or Orthodox nationalists. He had 52. Naftali Bennett did something impossible to believe, together with Yair Lapid, a liberal party member, and with the socialists, and with the Muslim party, and with all these renegades that broke away from Netanyahu, they formed a coalition of 61 members. And so that government has been in power now like six months. They're functioning. And actually, I take the liberty of saying that this is really indeed a wall-to-wall, multi-party system, a national unity government. That's what it is. And it includes an Arab Muslim party. They are fighting for the rights of the Muslims in Israel. This is the right of every democratically elected party to fight for their constituency. And Netanyahu and the ultra-Orthodox are out. The ultra-Orthodox in Israel today, I believe, are a threat to the future of Israel. And I'll explain why. Prior to World War II, there were leaders who were warning the Jews in Europe, get out of Europe before it's too late. They were saying, liquidate the diaspora before the diaspora liquidates you. Jabotinsky said that in 1920. Who tried to kill him? The ultra-Orthodox. Because the ultra-Orthodox did not want their people to leave Europe and go to Israel or America or anywhere else. And so when Hitler came to power, he just went and killed everybody. Nobody believed that the Germans would do what they did. Today, we have a leadership which, again, I believe is an accomplice to a possible Holocaust that is coming here in America very soon. Because we've spoken about this dozens of times on your show, that the Muslims are growing in numbers in America, they are armed, and the bottom line is kill the Jews on Saturday, kill the Christians on Sunday. And you're one of the few voices that allows me to share this information. This is not politically correct. I cannot say this even on Fox News. I've been on Fox News, but I cannot say that on Fox News. Today, I say, people can sue me if they want, that there are 30 million Muslims in America. 10% of 30 million are terrorists. That's 3 million. And they're all armed. The mosques are armories. 
and they are preparing for D-Day, the showdown, in which they're going to kill all the Jews. So you have six million Jews in America. Six million Jews are married to four million Christians. Okay, so according to the law of return to Israel, the six million Jews and the four million Christians are entitled to move to Israel, 10 million new immigrants. And I'm predicting they're going to come to Israel very soon because I'm predicting some kind of a showdown, perhaps economically, perhaps with China, perhaps with Russia. Uh, There will be economic upheaval in America. There's going to be economic upheaval all over the world. Well, can Israel, a small nation, take an extra 10 million people? I believe that Israel's borders are going to grow. Because ISIS is going to overtake Jordan, I believe. They're going to kill the king or force him to flee. I don't know if this is in the news, if you picked it up here. King Abdullah of Jordan spent $100 million buying properties here in the United States for when he has to go into exile. His family is ready to fly out of Amman straight to Israel to get away from ISIS. Now, the thing is, when ISIS takes over Jordan and you have the black flags of ISIS along the Jordan River... They're going to start digging tunnels under the Jordan River to invade Israel. Israel will have to invade eastward into Jordan. And that means that Israel's borders are going to grow eastward. I think the same applies to Saudi Arabia. King Salman and his son Mohammed bin Salman are going to be killed by ISIS. And then Israel is going to have to go south to Saudi Arabia. Not because it wants to. It doesn't want to. You know, I have to share something with you. I came to the States three weeks ago. My wife was watching the Arab media on her phone because, you know, everything's on the phone now. And all of a sudden, she yells out, Avi, come quickly. I go over to see what's going on. I see myself on the Egyptian TV. And they're saying, Avi Lipkin, the head of the Israel Bible Block Party, and his book, which you offer, Return to Mecca, the yellow book, is saying that the Jews and the Christians are going to take Saudi Arabia, destroy Mecca and Medina, and ban Islam. They're talking about me. This is three weeks ago. And so, you know, God willing, I don't know what's going to be what God wants with Saudi Arabia, but I think that we're going to see new borders, which we did not initiate. It's going to be an attack on us by ISIS. Yeah, well, doesn't the Bible say that every place where the Jew put their foot, like in Arabia, and we know there's Hebrew there on the rocks and stuff, that that's their land. That's exactly what the Egyptian TV program was saying. Wow. And I have it on Facebook. I still have it. If people want it, I can send it to them. So people can write to vicmore2001 at yahoo.com and I'll email it to them. But I am the enfant terrible of the Saudis and the Egyptians. I love them to pieces. Actually, I think when I come to power, it'll be the greatest blessing for the Muslims because I will bring them to the Lord before they bring me to the sword. (laughs) Well, how will your Bible block party fit into this very tempestuous situation? It's kind of exciting. At this stage, 8% of our population in Israel is Christian. And there's not one Christian in the Knesset. Muslims have 10 members of Knesset. The Druze have five. Christians don't have one. And they're 8%. There should be at least 8, 9, 10 members of Knesset who are Christian or Messianic. I'm working to do that. But when 10 million Jews and Christians make Aliyah to Israel as a result of a civil war here on American soil, then I will be the prime minister if my wife doesn't kill me first. And my party, <laughs> my party will be the biggest party in the Knesset. No Likud, no labor, no nothing because we're going to have 10 million immigrants, 6 million Jews, 4 million Christians. So I think this is your chance, all people listening to this show, to support the growth of Judeo-Christian Western values in Israel. 
Well, what does the possibility of a trip to Israel look like next fall? Because we have a tour schedule. I didn't go this past year. I missed it. I felt like half of my life was ruined. I didn't go to Israel. Do you think it's going to open up? What's happening with COVID-19 and et cetera? Yes, I think it's going to open up. It is already opening up to vaccinated and to people with documentation that they have been healed and that they have antibodies. Right, natural immunity. Now they're talking about in March, April, opening up to non-vaccinated. Well, that will be exciting because I've often wondered, you know, Israel depends on tourism and there was no tourism this year. How do they manage? Well, I'll tell you, tourism, I think, is about 5% of our economy. Really? Yeah. We have a very, very strong high tech. We have, we have a number of things. We have now the gas coming from the Mediterranean Sea, the basin. We have a pipeline we're building with Cyprus and Greece all the way to Italy. What I'm thinking, so many times, like the Palestinians, they want to make all the tourists stay away from Israel. And, of course, tourists are afraid to have all these rockets come. So if it's only 5% of the economy, it's no big deal. Even if a lot of tourists stay away, it doesn't kill the country. During the pandemic, our hospitals two or three times were full to the brim. And that was without tourists coming and getting sick. And, you know, the Israeli government did not want the hospitals to be overflowing with tourists. And so first, you know, I think Israel did a remarkable job. I don't want to inflame people who have not been vaccinated. I'm a pro-choice guy, meaning, you know, you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. You don't want to get it, it shouldn't be mandated. But I buried five Christians here in America who were anti-vaxxers. They got it, they died. And my number two, David Friedman, a very, very well-known Messianic lecturer, got COVID and he died also. I buried my number two. I don't say they would not have gotten sick with COVID if they had had the vaccination. Anyway, instead of 8,000 dead, we would have had 20, 30,000 dead if we hadn't mandated. Well, we haven't mandated it, but we pushed the vaccines. We promoted the vaccines very heavily. I think we're up to 80% vaccinated in Israel. Just give us a little rundown of your books. I think you've got eight books, maybe just seven. 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 By the way, my eighth book, I don't want to talk about it, but I'm That's already secret. working on it. It's <laughs> called Lepanto II, Turkey and the Armageddon. I'm going to get to that. That's going to be probably the most powerful of all the books. But I have seven books. Is Fanatic Islam a Global Threat, which is about 9-11. And actually, 20 years later, the exact same situation that we are in today My second book, Christian Revival for Israel's Survival, talks about how Islam wants to take over America through immigration and that they're succeeding in doing it. My third book, Islamic Threat Updates, is a book after 9-11 about Islamic plans to destroy America. Book number four is Israel's Bible Block Party, and that's, I recommend to everyone to understand the kind of party that I'm creating in Israel, that I have created, and I'm building up now. My fifth book is a very important book for pastors and also people who love reading the Bible. It's called Islam Prophesied in Genesis, and I explain why Allah is Satan and Islam is a criminal psychosis and not a religion at all. I got a three-year jail sentence in Switzerland for that. My sixth book is called Return to Mecca, which is, as I said before, that we're going to take Mecca and Medina and terminate Islam, capture the flag. And my seventh book is about the war in Syria between the Sunnis and the Shia. So if people want to understand why the Sunnis and Shiites are fighting each other, they need to get the seventh book. Get all seven books. How can we pray for you? May God's will be done on earth and in heaven. That's all I want. Because if I'm doing God's will and he wants it, it'll be. And if it isn't God's will, I should retire. He wants it, right. (laughs) Well, Avi, always a great blessing. Thank you so much, dear friend. And we will be praying for you. And once again, we've got all those books. And I know they will be a really great blessing, especially to our new listeners who've never had them. Amen.
Be sure and order today's featured resource, Flood Legends, by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Charles Martin continues his investigation into the Flood Legends. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.